So did you know that it's possible to know something, but you never actually act on it? For example, I've given a uh, something. See if you can figure out what this is. No, it's not a Cadbury cream egg. It's uh, a car, actually. And I've picked this. Even though even though it's a funny-looking car, we, we, we know what a car is, right? And it's possible to know a great deal about a car. Uh, for example, you can know how an engine works. You can know how the ignition works, how the transmission works. You can know how the brakes work. And, and, and even though you know all this good stuff, you never actually use that knowledge to, to go anywhere. But it's also possible to know very little about a car. And yet, uh, some of us who aren't mechanics, we, we use the car often. Uh, and, and we travel thousands of kilometers or miles with that car, even though we know very little. And, I'm using that as an illustration because it's the same way uh, for us sometimes in our Christian lives. It's possible to know uh, a great deal about the Bible. Uh, you, you, For example, you can know Bible doctrines and how to interpret the Bible properly. You can know lots of the, the moral standards, the promises. You can know its warnings. And yet, even though we know all that good stuff, we Sometimes we don't live by those truths. How sad is that? You have such great riches in Christ, but yet we don't actually use them. And in Ephesians, the the first part, Paul does his typical thing. He gives us his theology that that should be moving us to to application, to to the right methodology. And we'll see that uh, he's kind of starting to get into that now in the middle part of the book here. And so all the way from the very first verse to verse 13, Paul gives the basic truths about the Christian life. Uh, he's told us uh, who we are in Christ, and he's told us about these great unlimited resources that we have in Christ. And then starting here uh, in chapter 3, verse 14, and then all the way to, to the end of the letter, we are exhorted to claim and live by those theological truths. In chapter 3, 14 through 19, Paul here is, is giving his prayer request on behalf of the Ephesian believers. And in sharing his requests with them, he's urging them to live in the full power and effectiveness of every spiritual blessing. So basically, uh, this is Paul's prayer. So as, as you as you read this, look at this prayer. Uh, I would encourage you, this This would be a good model prayer for you to use for yourself and for other people. But basically, it's a prayer for enablement. It's a prayer of God's grace uh, for this particular church. And it's, it's a really good prayer. Ha- have a look here in Ephesians 3, verse 14. The Bible says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength 
to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So my proposition for you coming from the text today is this, that God wants you to be a fully functioning Christian. He wants you to be a fully functioning Christian. In other words, he wants you to live out all of those spiritual blessings he's talked about in the first two chapters. And he, and he, and he doesn't want you to just live, but he wants you to live them with maximum power and effectiveness. So that's what I mean by a fully functioning Christian. So, so living it out with maximum power and effectiveness. So that's basically his prayer. And in the, in the first part, he noticed the phrase, he says, for this reason. Uh, well, it, when you see that phrase, for this reason, you ought to be asking, well, what reason is he talking about? Well, he's, he's picking up after that parenthesis uh, that goes all the way from verse two to 13. And he's actually repeated the words of verse one. And so the reason about which Paul speaks is actually found back in chapter two. So when he says, for this reason, he's, he's, he's pointing us back to chapter two, all those great things he said there. So let me just remind you, if you go back to chapter two, you'll notice some of the things that, that he's been talking about. For example, uh, in verse five, Christ makes us spiritually alive in him. At verse 10, we are his workmanship. In verse 19, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints. And we're also of God's household. In verse 20, that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In verse 22, we're being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So it's for this reason, for all those reasons, this is why Paul is praying for them. Uh, and this is why we ought to be praying as well. So what is the reason? Answer, our new identity makes us the dwelling place of God. Did you hear that? Our new identity, we are this new society, this new community, this third race and so that makes us the dwelling place of God. And therefore, Paul prays for the Ephesians here to use the power that their great status in Christ provides. And so because God's power is in those believers, Paul prays that God would enable them to employ the fullness of that power. That's basically the prayer request. And so because believers are the dwelling place of the all-powerful God of the universe, Paul prays that their unlimited energy from him would, would be shown, it would be manifested. And it's interesting, Paul says here, uh, he talks about him kneeling before the Father. Now, why did Paul kneel before the Father? Why? Well, uh, if you look at verse 14, he was actually humbled before the Father's glory. And, and by the way, glory just has to do with with God's magnificence and his majesty and his greatness, all kind of encapsulated together is, is what his glory is. And so the reason is actually found again back in chapter 22, or sorry, chapter 2, 
when it mentions in verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul sees the church, and notice it's made up of living stones from every kind of people, and and, and we, the church, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that's a humbling truth. It, well, at least it should humble us. And so so Paul's humbled before the Father's glory. And that's why, well, first reason why he kneels here before the Father. Second of all, uh, if you look uh, back here in, in uh, chapter 3, uh, verse, verse 14, where he, where he says, Hey, I'm bowing my knees before the Father. Why? Because he mentions verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So he's confident here of the Father's care. This sovereign God, Paul simply calls the Father. He calls him the Father. We ought to be amazed by that. I'm amazed by that. Because the God who is infinitely great here allows himself to be intimately addressed by someone who is a kneeling sinner. And so Paul prays as he's, here he is, he's kneeling before the Father. He, he's going to the right place. And so what does he, for what does he pray? Well, first of all, oh, sorry, here were my questions. I forgot I put these in. But So we've answered this question, what is the reason? And we've answered the question, why did Paul kneel before the Father? So he's humbled, he's, he's confident so what does he pray? Well, first of all, the first prayer is for the inner strength of the Holy Spirit. Now put the basic notes in your email. So he, he's praying for the inner strength of the Holy Spirit there in verse 16, where he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner being. So, so notice what are you strengthened with? With God's power? How, did, how does that, that happen? What's the channel of, of this wonderful blessing and this power? Well, notice it's through the Holy Spirit. And, and where is the target here? The target, notice, is in your inner being. So, by the way, Paul is not praying for God to give these riches to believers. What he's actually praying for is that the believers would be strengthened by what they already possess. They already have these riches. In other words, he wants them to live their lives, uh, to live lives that actually correspond to the spiritual wealth they already possess in Christ. Let me give you an illustration uh, that I, that I found in one of my books I found helpful. There was a certain rich eccentric uh, Englishman by the name of Julian Ellis Morris. Interesting guy. Anyway, here, here's a photo of him. Uh, he, uh, he, he would actually purposely dress like a tramp, and then he would go out in the streets and sell razor blades, soap, and shampoo. And he would do this uh, most days. He'd go door-to-door selling these things. And After a day's work, he would return to his beautiful mansion, he would put on his beautiful formal clothes. He would have his chauffeur drive him to an exclusive restaurant in his limousine. And then sometimes this shows his 
how eccentric he is, but he would sometimes catch a flight over to Paris and would just spend the evening there. The guy was wealthy, and and he even though he often didn't live like it. And the point of that illustration, of course, is many Christians live like Mr. Julian Ellis Morris. They spend their day-by-day lives in apparent spiritual poverty, and then we sometimes occasionally enjoy the vast riches of God's glory. That's tragic, isn't it? How tragic to, to go around in tattered rags of our own inadequacy, and then we uh, when, when in reality we could be living in the superabundance of God's riches. You say, superabundance of God's riches. What are these glorious riches? Glad you asked that question. Because uh, Dr. D.A. Carson, or Don Carson, said this. He said, what are, what are these, as he's answering this question, what are these glorious riches? He says, what God has already secured for us on account of Christ. What's that? Well, Christ Jesus has won our pardon. He has reconciled us to God. He has canceled our sin. He has secured the gift of the Spirit for us. He has granted eternal life to us and promises us the life of the consummation. He has made us children of the new covenant. His righteousness has been accounted as ours. He has risen from the dead, and all of God's sovereignty is mediated through him and directed to our good and to God's glory. This is the Son whom God sent to redeem us. In God's all-wise plan and all-powerful action, all these blessings have been won by his Son's odious death and triumphant resurrection. So what wonderful blessings, right? What what glorious riches. So there you go, my friends. The first step in living like God's children there is to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. Now, as I I read that, you might be asking the same question that I'm asking myself. Well, how? How can that happen? Well, when the inner being is fed regularly on the Word of God and, and seeks the Spirit's will, then the believer can be sure that he's going to be strengthened with power. And you say, well, what power are we talking about here? We're talking about spiritual power, not not physical. So the the spiritual power is not, by the way, the mark of some special class of Christian, but is actually the mark of every Christian who submits to God's Word and to the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like physical growth and strength, if you want to liken it to that. Spiritual growth and strength does not come overnight, right? You don't get big muscles and you don't get fit just, uh, you know, by going for a 5K run, right? Uh, you don't get physically fit by, you know, pumping iron for five minutes, right? It doesn't work that way. Well, it's the same in the, in, in our spiritual lives. Um, as we discipline our minds and, and our spirits to study God's word, where we try to understand it you li- and try to live by it, then what happens is we're nourished and strengthened. Every bit of us of spiritual food and every bit of spiritual exercise 
just keeps adding up, adding to our strength and our endurance. And you get more and more fit. You get more strength, more endurance. And you might ask, well, what is spiritual growth? Well, spiritual growth can be defined as where where you have a decreasing frequency of sin. It doesn't mean the sin just is totally gone. Of course, you're going to have that till you're glorified. But it has to do with a decreasing frequency of sin. And so the more we exercise our spiritual muscles and we're yield to the Spirit's control in our lives, the less sin is present. So where the strength of God increases, then what happens is sin decreases. The nearer we come to God, the further we go from sin. So this is a good prayer request. Let's pray for God's enabling here. Let's pray for strength. Number two, the second prayer request that Paul mentions here is for the indwelling of Christ in the believer's heart. If you look at the first part of verse 17, that's where you'll see this. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, notice that phrase, a very important phrase in your Bible, at least in mine, it says, so that. That that phrase, so that, is actually translating a Greek word that is that is used to introduce a purpose clause. What is the purpose of being strengthened with power? Well, the purpose is mentioned right there. So that, so that, there's your purpose. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, the proper order seems to be reversed, at least in my mind, because every believer at salvation is indwelt by Christ and cannot have the Holy Spirit in the inner man here until he has received Christ as Savior. So therefore, he's, he's, Paul's not referring to Christ indwelling believers in salvation, so then it must be talking about indwelling in our hearts in sanctification. Sanctification is just where you're set apart from your sin unto God. So here's what a helpful commentator said on this. Quote, The connotation is not simply that of being inside the house of our hearts, but of being at home there, settled down as a family member. Christ cannot be at home in our hearts until our inner person submits to the strengthening of his spirit. Until the Spirit controls our lives, Jesus Christ cannot be comfortable there, but only stays like a tolerated visitor. Paul's teaching here does not relate to the fact of Jesus' presence in the hearts of believers, but to the quality of his presence. Now, as I read that from his commentary, I was I was actually thinking of a little booklet I read one time, and maybe maybe this commentator's thinking of this booklet. I'm curious, any of you ever heard of the booklet My Heart Christ Home? Well, anyways, anyway, in that little booklet, the author Robert Munger there pictures the Christian life as a house. Uh and, and in the house, uh, Jesus goes from room to room in that house, and in the library which, by the way, represents the mind. Jesus finds trash, rubbish, and he finds all sorts of worthless things which he proceeds to throw out and replace with his word. In the dining room of appetite, he finds many sinful desires listed on a worldly menu. 
and in the place of such things as prestige, materialism, and lust, he puts humility, meekness, love, and all the other virtues for which believers are to hunger and thirst. And then Jesus goes through to, into the lounge of fellowship where he finds many worldly companions and activities. Then he goes through the workshop where only toys are being made. And he goes into the closet where hidden sins are kept and so on. And eventually he goes through the whole house. And only when he had cleansed every room and closet and corner of sin and foolishness, then could could Jesus actually settle down and be at home. And that's that's the point uh, that, that commentator is trying to make there. So, the second prayer request, let's pray for Christ indwelling in our hearts, where he would he would feel at home, be be comfortable there. The third prayer request mentioned in the text is for Christ's love to saturate our lives. For Christ's love to saturate our lives. So he, he starts at the end of verse 17. He, he says that you, the church, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So, so he's praying for Christ's love to saturate our lives. And the result of our doing the other ones, yielding to the Spirit's power, submitting to Christ's lordship in our hearts, then the, the result is love. And so when Christ settles down in our lives there, he begins to display his own love in us and through us. And so when he freely indwells our hearts, notice we what, what happens? We become rooted and grounded in love. The idea is there you're, you're settled on a strong foundation of love. What is love? <laughs> well, we, we get confused when we look to the world's definitions of love. So let me explain it this way. Love is an attitude of selflessness. And the, the Greek word there is agape. Hopefully you're familiar with that. Biblical agape love is a matter of the will. It's not a matter of feelings or emotion, though certainly deep feelings and emotions almost always accompany love. God's loving the world in John 3.16, for example, was not a matter of, of just feeling on God's part. It actually resulted in him doing something. He sent his only son to redeem the world. Therefore, love is selfless giving. It's always selfless and it's always giving. Now, how would you measure God's love? How, how would you measure God's love? That's a hard thing to do. Well, the Apostle Paul actually uh, attempts an, an answer in measuring God's love. And here's what one commentator said, quote, God's love for his people is as long as eternity past, so wide as to include all nations, so high as to ring praises from angels in heaven, and so deep as to cancel the claims of hell on our souls, end quote. So every one of those phrases is coming from the previous verses, trying to explain God's love, just how vast and how big and how powerful it is. So my friends, 
Knowledge of this magnitude is very powerful. You need to understand this is important. And you, you say, why is that important? Well, you will do precisely what you love. We all do. We all do what we love. And, and until you have a greater love for the things of God than the things of the world, you're not going to be able to stop. See, our power is in our passions. It's in our desires. And the love that motivates us is actually the power that drives us. Therefore, our greatest obligation is to fire a more profound love for God. And that's why Paul's praying for this. He understands this. Without love, there's, there's not going to be power to do what God requires. Only an overwhelming affection for him is going to produce an overcoming power to defeat the sin in our lives. You've heard me say this, not original with me. Uh, how do you defeat sin? The only way you're going to defeat sin is with superior pleasure. Because the, the Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season, for a, for a while. It doesn't last. And so you have to come up with something better, something greater, more superior. And, and of course, Paul's pointing us to that superior pleasure that will defeat the sin. And by the way, I don't think when, when Paul mentions the, the breadth and the length and height and depth, I don't think it's, uh, represents four specific types or categories of love here. But he's just suggesting the, va the vastness and the completeness of God's love in Christ. So, so in whatever spiritual direction you look, you can see God's love. We've seen this in the previous verses. For example, you can see love's breadth reflected in chapter 2, 11 to 18. And there it's reflected in God's acceptance of Gentiles and Jews equally in Christ. We can see love's length in chapter 1 when God chose us before the foundation of the world. And that salvation is going to last throughout all eternity. We can see love's height in God having blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, chapter 2, verse 6 talks about he raises us up, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We can see love's depth reaching down to the lowest levels of depravity. What is he doing? And he redeemed those who were dead in trespasses and sins. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So God's love can reach any person in any sin. It's stretching from eternity past to eternity future. And it takes us into the very presence of God. And what is it doing then? It seats us with Christ right there at God's throne. So question, my friend, because I know some of you are, have thought this, at least in the past, when will God stop loving me? Right? We're, we're always looking for that really fine print, and, and we look at this and we say, that is just too good to be true. When is God going to stop loving me? How many sins can I commit until God just cuts me off and said, I've had enough of you? Right, I know some of you have had the wrong impressions of your heavenly father because your earthly father is sinful. All of our earthly fathers are sinful. We all get the wrong impression of our heavenly father from our earthly fathers. So um, 
some of you might be thinking, well, if, if I'm disobedient or, you know, I fall into sin, I, I bring shame and dishonor to Jesus Christ, is he going to stop loving me then? And the answer is found by another passage of Scripture Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 35. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on to list all these things that can't. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's the answer? Paul says, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor things, uh, sorry, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. By the way, that includes you. That includes you. None of that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a beautiful hymn, I hope you know this hymn, that reminds us of this truth as well. The beautiful hymn, The Love of God, just shows the, the vastness and the greatness of God's love. When, when the hymn says, Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade To write the love of God above Would drain the oceans dry Nor could the scroll contain the whole Though stretched from sky to sky My friends, the world cannot comprehend the great love that Christ gives. You know why? Because it can't understand Christ. It just doesn't understand Christ. Worldly love, just look at movies, for example, and romance novels. What, what are they doing? It's all based on attraction. And therefore, how long does the love last if it's based on attraction? It, it only lasts as long as the attraction. Christ's love is based on his own nature and therefore lasts forever. Worldly lasts until you're offended and then you want a divorce or whatever, right? But Christ's love lasts despite every time we're offended, right? Every time he's offended. Worldly love lo loves for what it can get, but Christ loves for what he can give. So what is incomprehensible here to the world is to be normal living for the child of God. So this is something we should pray for, for ourselves and for the church. Let's pray for Christ's love. And then number four, the last prayer mentioned here is to have God's fullness in us. That's incredible. That is just an incredible prayer. Because uh, think about this. Well, here, here's, here's a statement from a commentator trying to explain this word filled here. Filled means to make full or fill to the full. It speaks of total dominance. For example, a person filled with rage is totally dominated by hatred. A person filled with happiness is totally dominated by joy. 
To be filled up to all the fullness of God, therefore, means to be totally dominated by him with nothing left of self or any part of the old man. By definition, then, to be filled with God is to be emptied of self. It is not to have much of God and little of self, but all of God and none of self. End quote. There's a man by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman, who was a preacher. He often told the testimony of somebody that he had met, an unmanned, uh, unnamed man. And here's what uh, Mr. Chapman said about this man. He, he says, I, I got off at the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp. He's talking about this man. He says, for a year I begged on the streets for a living. One day I touched a man on the shoulder and said, hey, Mr., can you give me 10 cents? And as soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. I said, Father, Father, do you know me? And throwing his arms around me and with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, my son, at last I found you. I have found you. You want a dime? You want 10 cents? Everything I have is yours. Think of it. He said, I was a tramp. I stood begging. I was begging my own father to give me 10 cents when for 18 years he had been looking for me to give me all he had. Incredible story. And and the point of the story is it's, it's just a small picture of what God wants to do for his children. His supreme goal in bringing us to himself here and, and giving us himself in his fullness is to make us like himself. How does he do that? He does that by filling us with himself. He's filling us with all that he is and all that he has. So this is good news. It's really good news. When the Holy Spirit has empowered us, and then number two, Christ has indwelt us, and then three, love has mastered us. Look at this. If all of this happens and, and God's filled us with his own fullness, then the next verses, the, the end of chapter three can actually take place. Then God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And so it's, it's only until those conditions are met that God's working in, in us is limited. Until those, I should say, until those conditions are met, all four of those, those prayer requests there, then God's working in us is going to be limited. But when they are met, his working in us is unlimited. And so, my friends, the question for you to consider is, how are you living? How are you living? Do, do you see any of those things in your own life? Are you praying for those things for yourself? Are you praying for, I hope you pray for those things for me. I hope you pray for those for the church. We need that. We need that. I, I hope you want God to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That won't happen until those conditions are met. So will you pray for God to make us fully functioning Christians? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, would you make us fully functioning Christians? Would you cause us to believe all the glorious riches in Christ that we, we see in Ephesians 1 and 2? 
May we really believe what we believe so that we would then act and live according to just how wealthy we really are in Christ. So we're thankful for these glorious riches. We're thankful for your great love. May we know the the experience of this and uh, live as fully functioning Christians. And so may we may we see you working in glorious ways, giving honor and glory to yourself through doing exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Just blow us away with your with your goodness and your greatness. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.